Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the IBEAR MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. I'm here on the sidelines of the 31st Annual Asia-Pacific Business Outlook Conference. Uh, my name is Dick Drobnik. I'm the director of the one-year full-time mid-career MBA program. And I have the privilege of interviewing uh, one of our keynote speakers, Ambassador Gary Locke, who was an American ambassador to China. And prior to that, he was Secretary of Commerce. Prior to that, he was the governor of Washington. Ambassador, what are you doing now? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Richard, uh, for inviting me to be part of this conference. I mean, uh, uh, the business outlook uh, really brings uh, professionals uh, from the Commerce Department, uh, from all around Asia, and really helping American companies uh, understand the business opportunities in Asia, as well as trying to encourage investment from Asia into the United States, because we know that uh, the more that American companies export, the more they produce, the more they produce, uh, the more workers that they need, and that means jobs for the American people. But at the same time, foreign investment into the United States creates jobs. Uh, the same way that you know we have the Japanese and German automobile companies with their factories here. Well, you knew uh, that very strongly yeah, as, yeah. as governor. Yeah, uh, that, you know that's what governors do, always trying to help sell their you know, made in their state products and services around the world because there's a hunger and a demand for those high quality made in USA goods and services, whether it's food, whether it's agricultural products to machinery to even services like environmental cleanup or, or, or medical devices and medical procedures. So, you know, I, I really think of this as a win-win for both foreign companies and people in other lands and American companies and American workers um, uh, raising the standard of living for people on both sides of the Asia-Pacific region. So what am I doing now after I step down as ambassador? Um, I have my own consulting practice. I have a few companies that I advise and help on U.S.-China trade issues, um, Chinese companies, U.S. companies, working part-time at a law firm, uh, providing some of the same advisory services to the clients of the firm, and I'm trying to learn to play golf. <laughs> uh, what are your views Imagine you're still ambassador in Beijing, and the administration is slapping on 232s, and the administration is threatening this and threatening that. Would you be called in as ambassador saying, what are you guys doing? Would they be complaining to you? Well, obviously, uh, uh, any time the Chinese government uh, has concerns over U.S. policy, whether it's political, geopolitical, military strategic or uh, economic, uh, they will call in the U.S. ambassador to uh, lodge their protests, lodge their concerns, uh, state their views, and ask for explanation from uh, the ambassador. Uh, and the ambassador is obliged, as a representative of the president of the U.S. government, to uh, uh, convey the thoughts and the concerns and the position of the U.S. government. Uh, personally, I, I find uh, this prospect of a trade war very, very distressing. Uh, yes, American companies and, and policyholders, uh, government officials, have very deep concerns about China's trade practices, industrial economic policies. Uh, so many parts of the Chinese economy are off limits to foreign and U.S. investment, whereas in America, virtually no sectors are uh, restricted uh, or off limits to Chinese investment. So there is the lack of a level playing field. But imposing tariffs... Uh, I don't believe really gets to that fundamental issue. Uh, if our concern is uh, lack of market access 
and a theft of intellectual property through forced technology transfer, then we need to address those. And I, I just don't think that tariffs are the right way to go because once you start going down the road of tariffs, there will be retaliation. And then you end up in a trade war. And in a trade war, nobody wins. Both sides lose. The workers and the consumers of both sides will lose. And well, I, but, but, Ambassador, our president said trade wars are easy to win. Well, I don't, I don't agree with that. And uh, you look at even the times when I was at the Commerce Department, we slapped on huge uh, tariffs uh, on the flood, the surge of Chinese tires into America. Um, and... Uh, People say that it only created and sustained a few thousand jobs in America, but the Chinese retaliated. Uh, they retaliated against uh, U.S. exports of chicken uh, parts and other things, and so ultimately other parts of the economy suffered. So, uh, yes, we have legitimate concerns about what China is doing, but I think that we really should team up with other countries uh, who, whose investment into China uh, are also restricted, and really talk about imposing reciprocal constraints on Chinese investment into the West, because the Chinese very much want to invest worldwide. Um, so it's creating a coalition of friends, the Germans, the Brits, the French, the everyone, Australians, yeah. Canadians, Canadians, everyone. Canadians, yeah. But can we do that if we're angering our friends with well, <laughs> tariffs and then pulling them back and threatening this and threatening that. Well, I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. We need our allies, not just on issues pertaining to China, but whether it's fighting terrorism or trying to respond to chemical attacks in Syria or standing up to Russia in terms of their interference in elections, whether it's in Europe or in the United States. So I think we need to work with our allies. We need to work with our allies. And I actually feel that if there is a trade war, American companies and American consumers have more to lose than Chinese companies and Chinese consumers. The reality is that so much of what Americans buy uh, is only made or largely made and supplied, uh, made in and supplied from China, whether it's shoes. You know, the shoes that we buy at Nordstrom's, Macy's, Target, most of that is all made in China. So what's our alternative? Buy really expensive Italian shoes? Uh, virtually all the microwaves that American consumers... As a professor, I can't yeah. afford <laughs> Virtually all of the microwaves that Americans buy are made in China. So what alternatives do we have? But on the other hand, China does not have to buy so much of what they get from America. They don't have to order Boeing airplanes. I mean, yes, there's a huge backlog of Boeing airplanes that have been ordered by the Chinese uh, airlines, but next year when they order some more airplanes, they can order from Airbus, Airbus. All right, they don't have to buy American soybeans. Brazil has a huge surplus of soybeans, and so they don't even have to impose a tariff. They can simply tell their Chinese companies just slow down or reduce your purchases of American-made products, and um, and that will affect our, our workers. Interfering in the market structure uh, should only be done with really thoughtful, thoughtful analysis, and particularly if you want to not anger the country you're intervening with, you need to be able to lay out the case. Why are we doing this? What behavior change might you do? And if you can do that with your Canadian friends and your German friends, it's got to be better than what we're trying to do. We angered our allies with the recent tariffs on imported steel. I mean, if the target was China, 
Well, China only uh, only three percent of the US steel coming into America comes from China. The rest of it comes from Canada, Australia, Germany, South Korea, Japan, and and the EU countries. So this really impacted our allies, and then we turn right around and basically exempt all of them. So how are we helping U.S. steel manufacturers if? All this, or most of the foreign steel coming in, is now going to be unaffected. It will not have the tariffs. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, the president said that uh, we'll give a permanent exemption uh, on the tariffs to South Korea if we're able to renegotiate the U.S.-Korea a free trade agreement. And they did that, but I, I look at the details and I scratch my head because in giving South Korea the permanent exemption on the tariffs on steel, um, Korea, in exchange, said that they would allow more U.S. automobiles to go into Korea, South Korea, that don't comply with their labeling and some of their safety standards. Well, that sounds pretty good. They're going to allow more U.S. automobiles into South Korea. The problem is South Koreans don't like American automobiles. They're not buying our automobiles in the first place. So what did we gain from that? And then also South Korea agreed that they would continue for years longer uh, paying a tariff on Korean trucks that come into the United States. Uh, only problem is that there are no Korean trucks coming into the United States. So what do we get from that? So uh, you know, it, it, um, it, we, the president scored a big political um, headline for his supporters by saying he got tough with South Korea and he was able to, through his tough position, uh, renegotiate the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement. But in the end. It didn't really benefit the United States. We're not going to export more automobiles to South Korea, and we're certainly not stopping um, or making it more difficult for South Korean trucks to come into the United States because they're not bringing trucks in anyway. Do, do you think that uh, when, you, when you were Secretary of Commerce, you would know these things before a, a new trade sanction was put in place? You'd have some advisors that would be informing you about this. Wouldn't that be the case with the current Secretary of Commerce? Wouldn't he have advisors telling him there are no Korean truck exports to the United States and Koreans don't buy American cars? I don't know who's advising them. I mean, I mean, to be fair, we have very legitimate concerns about China's trade practices and industrial and economic policies. But our tariffs, tariffs on foreign steel from all around the world going to get at the steel coming from China, which only makes up 3% of imported steel coming into America in the first place. I, I just don't understand how that was going to get at the problem. And if the problem really is the forced transfer of U.S. technology to China, because China it, it says that uh, in so many sectors um, Americans can't even invest, but if they do, they have to do it with a Chinese partner, and the U.S. investment has to be less than 50%, so they have to team up with a partner, and then they share their technology with that partner. That partner learns the technology, and after a few years goes off on, on its own and, and is able then to turn around and compete against the U.S. company. If that's our concern, we need to address that. And, uh, but in a, in a trade war uh, with China feeling its strength and saying they think – uh, they don't want a trade war, but if there is a trade war, uh, they're going to respond and they're not going to back down. Um, uh, then I think the uh, American interests are not well served, and it does not get at that fundamental issue of closed parts of the Chinese economy and uh, forced transfer of intellectual property. 
On, on the other issue that the president has talked about and his, his cabinet has talked about, of we are against the Chinese government having an industrial plant, China 2025. We are against the Chinese government investing in, in future technologies. This sounds so silly to me that we can try to tell a government what they can invest in. Uh, does somebody tell us what DARPA can fund in the United States? Does somebody tell us what, what types of things we can build? But we think we can tell them that they can't invest in future technologies? How does that make any sense to you? Well, clearly, if, if China ever exports, whether it's robotics and uh, very high-tech goods that have been subsidized, uh, then we can bring you know those dumping cases and countervailing duty cases, et cetera, et cetera. But instead of saying China should not place a priority on R&D in robotics, 5G, or artificial intelligence, we should be, as a government, increasing our funding of basic research to our colleges, universities, and tax incentives for R&D among corporations into this cutting-edge research, um, just as we put a lot of government money into the space program. And just as we put so much money into cancer research and developing, you know, new crops and, and uh, genetically modified uh, uh, crops and things like that through our colleges and universities, we should be doing the same thing. The world is not going to stop. Countries and whether it's the Germany and others are not going to stop uh, looking at cutting edge research. The question is, what are we doing? I mean, our future as a country. Uh, lies with respect to continuing innovation. That's what has made America so great. Um, and our college university system, the, the premier higher education system in the world, let's take advantage of that. I mean, all the discoveries that we all take for granted now, much of it came from government-funded research and, and uh, incentives from the space program, military program, uh, medical research. We cannot just assume that these future developments will happen on their own without a coordinated U.S. policy. Yeah, uh, you're a 1,000% right. If we want to compete in the world, we have to make ourselves more competitive, not tell other people, don't try to compete with us. Don't, don't have your NSF funding things when we don't have the budget to fund them. We, we've got to aggressively continue what we've done so well and, and step it up. But to, to tell another baseball team, hey, you can't do batting practice at midnight because our guys won't do it. I mean, this is just ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, China is luring some of the top researchers and scientists from around the world in artificial intelligence and giving them money to set up labs and staff providing staff and everything else. Right. Are they getting people from American universities, European well, uh, universities? I just know that, uh, you know, that they're throwing that money out and making it available to some of the top people uh, and encouraging uh, uh, Chinese nationals to return home uh, to engage in this research. They're trying to lure some of the top people from around the world um, uh, of even other different nationalities with uh, you know, very nice laboratories and staff and funding uh, to engage in this research. So I think we need to do the same thing. Could you provide a little bit of thought and comment on 
the North Korea situation. Is there things that China could do, and is it in their interest to do them, that would uh, restrict North Korea's ability to continue to develop nuclear weapons or to continue to develop delivery systems? So is there things they could do that would be important, and is it in China's interest to do them? Well, China has gone along with all the UN sanctions on North Korea. One can argue, are they really enforcing and abiding by all those sanctions? Uh, are they allowing uh, people to violate that, some of their companies and financial institutions? Uh, yes, I suppose they could put even more pressure on North Korea. Uh, but um, uh, China's involvement in an ultimate solution to the North Korea nuclear problem is going to be key. And they will be a integral part of an ultimate grand bargain, along with Russia and the United States, Japan and South Korea. China does not want a collapse of the North Korean regime. They do not want a unification of the peninsula the same way that there was a unification of East and West Germany. Because China does not want a democratic country on its border. They don't want the possibility of American troops that might be stationed in Korea now up in the north along the border. Uh, so um, they may not fear North Korea using a nuclear arsenal against China itself, but they fear and are concerned about the destabilization of the peninsula with North Korea's continued development of a nuclear weapon simply because it really upsets America and Japan and and um, uh, South Korea and many of our other allies. They, they're more concerned about the U.S. Western response mm. to North Korea's continued development of uh, a nuclear uh, weapon that has the capability of, of hitting the United States. And so um, I think the ultimate grand bargain uh, is going to have to include China. And we're going to have to uh, push China to be part of that grand bargain. So. That's why all these other issues on trade also make a difference. If we get into a really tough trading war with China, why would China want to help us achieve our goals? And of course, we think of denuclearization meaning that North Korea gives up its nuclear arsenal. But to North Korea and even China, if North Korea is going to give up its nuclear arsenal, what will the United States and South Korea do in terms of reducing its nuclear capacity, whether it's stationed and its military capacity. Um, how, how does North Korea and China feel assured that the United States will not turn around and encourage or work with the South Koreans to invade North Korea? So uh, China and North Korea may say denuclearization also includes the whole peninsula, and that means the U.S. military capability and, and, surrounding, bases and the Japan. surrounding bases in Japan where you could launch a nuclear attack, et cetera, et cetera. So it's going to be very, very complicated and, um, and not a very simple grand bargain that ultimately has to be uh, negotiated. But I do uh, compliment the president uh, for being willing to meet with the leader of North Korea to start that dialogue and to hopefully ratchet down the rhetoric that could lead to a miscalculation, a misstep uh, by either the United States or North Korea. Any final 
set of recommendations for the current administration? Uh, you know, we have a lot of problems in the world, and we cannot solve them. America cannot solve them on its own. Um, and China cannot solve a lot of these problems on its own. The world, in fact, is looking for leadership from both China and the United States working together, whether it's fighting global terrorism, stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons, whether it's in Iran or in North Korea, uh, and uh, finding cures for some of the most dreaded diseases, and, and of course trying to coordinate a response on climate change. The world is really looking for leadership from both America and uh, China working together. And uh, we have a great history of cooperation. Obviously, we have a lot of differences. Uh, but uh, we can really, I think, help each other by working more closely together. And um, we will have issues, uh, but uh, our areas of agreement and common purpose far outweigh those areas of disagreement. And so uh, let's hope we can avoid a trade war. Great. Gary, thank you very much. My pleasure. And My pleasure. I'm delighted to know that you are a Trojan parent. <laughs> your son is doing well in his first year at UC. Really enjoying it. Great, great, great school and, and great campus. Business class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite.